Thank you, Ron. Well, good morning. See that we have many uh, new people with us this morning. Uh, also, that this is a family Sunday, and so we also have our children in our service this morning. We also know that there's probably family visiting and uh, that came together with other members of our church. We also, later in the service, are very excited that both Noah and Jackie will be publicly professing their faith in Christ Jesus as they are uh, baptized and that they are in doing that, taking a stand and demonstrating externally the internal reality, the internal transformation that has already happened in their lives as both of them uh, already shared their testimony with our church and our members meeting in uh, expressing how they have placed their faith in Christ alone for their salvation. And so we are grateful for that. So we have that coming up in our service. Um, But right now I want to invite you to open up to the book of Acts. We are going to be in Acts chapter Four. Uh, if you need a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. If you're looking in that Bible, it's going to be page 858. Now, as you're turning there, as you're going to Acts chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 32 through 35. I want to ask you, what do you do when someone tells you something that seems too good to be true? Someone comes up to you and says, oh, I I need to tell you about this business opportunity that is guaranteed to make you, you'll never have to work for someone else again in your life. Like that, that seems too good to be true. Or or maybe kids, you you see a commercial for a toy and, and I remember when I was a kid and I would watch different commercials and there would be ones where they would make it seem like the toy could do way more than it really could do. And it looked like you could, could maybe go fly with this toy and it could do all those things. And it just saw, it seemed a little too good to be true. And many times, what is the phrase? If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Every once in a while, there can be something that seems too good to be true, but it isn't. It is, in fact, true. How do we, in, in a time, in, in a place where so much is, is made to sound way better, where so many commercials are, all they want to do is get you to buy in, how many pyramid schemes exist. There's all of these different things that just say, well, no, it can be this good if it's exactly perfect. And in a world where so much is presented that is better, it's presented better than it actually is, how do we discover, how does this world know when something actually is true? What do you look for? What do you try to find? You want to know evidence. You want to be able to see, wait a second, if this is true, then there should be a sign that shows that it's true. If this is true, there should be evidence. When we come to Scripture, is there any claim in this world, is there anything bigger than the claims of Scripture? If there was something that seems 
too good to be true. It's the good news of the gospel. The good news that God himself, who we rebelled against, we turned away from him, we sinned, we were separated from him, that God himself would say, you sinned against me, but I will send my son to set you free. The good news that Jesus Christ came to this earth The good news that the mystery that was hidden for ages that now is revealed that God does not just, cannot just be in the same area as us because we were separated. It's not just going back to the Garden of Eden of where it is. No, this is better because now God is saying, no, I will dwell in you. I will give you my spirit. He will be within you. That's good news. The good news that you, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, will never die. Yet shall, if they die, yet shall they live. As Ron was praying earlier, that the good news that he is going to prepare a place for us. The good news that he who began the good work will bring it to completion. The good news that we have become a new creation in Christ. Those are all things that sound what? Too good to be true. And with so much in this world that when it looks too good to be true, it probably is. With so many things in this world that are that, for us to stand up and say, no, this is not too good to be true. This is completely true. What is the world going to look for? Proof. Give me the evidence. Show me that this is in fact true. So far in the book of Acts, Luke has been giving us signs and evidence that what Christ said would happen is in fact true. In the final weeks before Jesus' death and then the weeks after his death, Jesus told his disciples what was going to happen. It is for your benefit that I am going to leave because if I don't leave, the Holy Spirit won't come. But if I go, I will send him to you and that is for your benefit. So what do we see in Acts chapter 2? In the Acts 1, Christ leave, leaves, but in Acts 2, uh, what, do, what arrives? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit arrives, and what do we see right after that? We begin to see all of these signs and proof that what Christ said is, in fact, true. What's the first sign that we see? That he begin to speak in tongues. A multitude surrounds them because they're hearing all of these truths, all of these praises to God, and they're saying, what's happening? And Peter stands up and says, this is the fulfillment of Scripture. God said this was going to happen, and it is, in fact, happening right now before your eyes. But it's even worse on one side because you're not included in this because you crucified the Messiah, but it's better than you could imagine because in Christ's death, which was God's plan, there is salvation. And what do we see there? 3,000 people place their faith in Jesus. And it transforms them as we see at the end of chapter two. It describes this new community of believers. Then we get to chapter three and there's a new sign, a new proof that what is happening is actually true. What's the new sign? Cripple. A cripple since birth. He's 40 years old now. He's always been this cripple and yet he's healed. 
And what evidence, what do Peter and John proclaim to the crowd that says, what happened? This happened through the name of Jesus. Then when they come before uh, the the Jewish leaders and the leaders uh, push against them, they threaten them, they question them, and they tell them, do not say anything more in Jesus' name. And Peter and John boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. They stand up with courage. What do the the leaders say? This doesn't make sense to us. The only thing that makes sense is if these were people that were with Jesus. Luke has been systematically giving us evidence and signs that what Christ said was not too good to be true. It is completely true. But most of those signs so far have been external. And and if you're a skeptic, you might be thinking, well, that's fine for a few select individuals to to be doing it. Again, if you think of, of a pyramid scheme, those people that are, oh, you can, you'll never have to work for someone else again. You can be your own boss. You can make millions. How many people are actually doing that with those, those models? Like two or three at the top. Everyone else isn't doing that. And so you might say, well, yeah, I mean, maybe it's true, but maybe you just have Peter and John. Maybe there's a, just a select few that are part of this. No, if you really want to know something is true, you, I want, no, I want to know what everything is happening. What's happening for everyone? And so that's where Luke turns now. Luke now is going to give internal evidence. Evidence that is not just in the few, but in the many. He's going to point to the reality of the transformation that is happening in this new period. In our passage this morning, Luke is going to provide us a further sign that the good news is not too good to be true. The good news is verifiably true. And the sign that we are going to see is the sign within the body of Christ. Here's our big idea. The Spirit's sign among us is selfless unity between us. The Spirit's sign among us is selfless unity between us. If the world is going to see that the Spirit truly dwells within us, that Christ has given us His Spirit, what is that sign to the world? It is going to be the unity, the selfless unity between those who are His children. Let's begin and look at a glimpse of the early church. Let's uh, look first at verse 32. I want us to see there's going to be three signs that are given that demonstrate this unity within the body. The first one is they're sharing selflessly. Looking at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Look at how verse 32 starts. The full number of those who believed. This is not just a sign of some. This is not just the sign of the spiritually mature, the spiritually elite. This is a sign of all of them. The full number of those who had what? Those who, be- who believed. This is a new community, a new people. It's a large community. When we started the book of Acts, how many disciples are there? 120. 
It's about the size of this congregation. But what happens shortly after that is by the time we reach the, uh, chapter four, there are 5,000 believers just counting the men. So it could easily be well over 15,000 people. They went from a medium-sized church to a mega church in the space of a few weeks. What would we expect from a brand new community like that? Do you think that everyone came into this community and they were all of the same exact mind? They all had the same background? You think that in a group of well over 5,000 people, they all cheered for the same sports team? They all made the same amount of money and therefore thought of themselves as socially equal? They all had the same cultural background based on where they grew up. They all had the same political views. They all agreed on what to do during pandemics. They all had the same ideas on how to educate their children. That, that's why they were so united in this place? No. This is a varied group. When, when Luke describes all the people that are there at Pentecost, it's people from all over the place. As we're going to continue in Acts, we're going to see some of even the divisions between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. There are different groups, different social groups in this larger group. And yet, what does it say? The full number of those people who believed were of one heart and soul. This is a completely new group. This is a new people. This is a people who have placed their faith in Jesus and therefore become a new creation. Now, is Luke just saying these words? Is he just waxing poetic, romantically describing the early church? They were of one heart and soul because that's how we want to describe ourselves to a people. Oh no, we are so united in this place. We have, you know, my whole business, we have one goal, one mission. There's no, no, uh, if you're going in an interview and the boss says, oh no, everyone here has the same goal. And you're like, okay. Maybe. Let me, let me spend some time with these people to actually see if that's true. Is that what Luke's doing? He's just saying this in a nice way to describe them? No. Because he demonstrates how they were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They shared selflessly. Now, I understand it's not saying that they, no one owned anything. Because what did it say? No one said the things that belonged to them were their own. So things did still belong to individuals, and yet they didn't treat it like that. They looked at each other and they said, if this is mine, count it as yours. Take this. Use it. If I can be a blessing to you, let me be a blessing to you. I remember one time talking to someone here in this church and, and they expressed the idea that until 
Something God has given you becomes a blessing to others. It's not really a blessing to you. The idea of saying, all these people are saying, no, yeah, this isn't mine. It's ours. They were of one heart and soul. This isn't natural. This isn't normal. This is a sign that something greater is happening. In Ezekiel 36, it says this. This is speaking of the new covenant and looking forward. And this is what it says. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This new community that shares so selflessly is a sign that the spirit is within them. That they were of one heart and soul. We continue to verse 33 and we see that they are showing powerfully the sign that the spirit is within them. Look at what it says. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Now, if you're reading through and you go from verse 32 and continue through verse 35, verse 33 kind of feels like it doesn't fit. Verse 32 talks about this community and everything they're doing for each other. Verses 34 and 35 talk about the community and what they're doing for each other. And then verse 33 kind of feels like it's shoehorned in and is talking about something totally different. But what's happening here? Again, I think that Luke is linking the internal signs with the external mission. What do we see in verse 33? There is great power and great grace. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That is the mission that they were given and that we were given. And great grace was upon them all. Look at this power first. Where is this power? Where is this power and grace coming from? The apostles are giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Remember, this is the mission that we saw in, in chapter 1, verse 8, and this is what Jesus said would happen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So where does the power come from? It comes from God. The source of the great power that they have is from God. But consider the context that we find this verse 33. Why is Luke talking about something that seems like it would have fit better at the end of the previous section when they were praying for courage? Why does he put it here in the context of the local church? Because the internal signs of the Spirit's indwelling powerfully impact the external proclamation of Christ. Let me explain what I mean by that. When we are externally, publicly, proclaiming Christ. What is happening behind us in the church powerfully impacts that message. If people are going to look and say, wait a second, you're saying all of these things the Spirit does. 
You're saying all of this transformation happens. What evidence is there? If they can look behind the person proclaiming and they say, wait a second, I can see a people who are transformed. I can see a people doing things that do not make sense. I can see a people who should not be united and yet they are living in unity. Does that powerfully impact the message? Of course. Ultimately, is that power still from God? Yes, because it is God who caused that transformation to happen. But notice in the context where this is saying, and they powerfully were bearing witness, part of that power comes from the community that is behind them because there is an evidence of what is happening. But it continues and it says that there was great grace. Again, great grace was upon them all. Where is that grace coming from? First and foremost, from God, our Savior. Grace is unmerited favor. Why is this community receiving grace? Because grace is, comes from our Lord Savior who came in grace and in truth and lavishes his grace on us. But there's more. Do we receive grace from being part of Christ's body? We do. The great grace is first and foremost from God, but the great grace is also poured out through his body. And so what we see in this verse 33 is that they are showing powerfully the sign of what has happened. They are showing that truly a transformation has occurred as they bless one another, as they lavish grace on one another, the grace that they first received from God. God often chooses to pour out his grace through his people. Great grace is on them because they are living as God's people. The sign of the Spirit is evident as they powerfully show it, but we continue and now we see a new way in which they are sharing with each other because they are even selling generously their possessions. Look at verses 34 through 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was not a needy person among them. This was God's plan for God's people since the beginning. In Deuteronomy 15, 4 as God is talking and speaking to his chosen people, this is what he says to them. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. There will be no poor among you. Here we see this new people, this church, this, this community that God himself created. And how is it described? There was not a needy person among them. Now, how is this happening? Is it because that all of a sudden, each of these individuals is just going out to their mailbox and supernaturally, there's gold and diamonds there that were not there ever before. And supernaturally, there's just way more available for this people. No, how, how was it that there was not a needy person among them? 
For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. How did God provide for the needy within the community? Through the community. What's the impactful part of this of verses 34 and 35? It's not that there was not a needy person among them. The impactful part is how that came about. The impactful part is that those who had much sold what they had in order to give to those who had nothing. That they looked at each other and said, this is my brother, this is my sister whom I love. I want to do what I can so that they are not in need. I just want to do a a quick aside here. This flies in the face of the false gospel that preaches a prosperity gospel. See, a prosperity gospel says that, oh, oh, you're in need? Well, then you just give a little bit of your money to the church. Then God is going to honor what you have given. That's the seed that you planted. And then God is going to supernaturally pour all of these things out on you. And then the verse that everyone says, for God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Is it true that God does in fact own that? Yes, but Often that cattle are my cattle and your cattle. And how does he choose to provide for those in need? By his people choosing to say, wait, I will give what I have to help that individual. What we never see with those pastors and preachers who are saying, you need to give all this to God and then God is going to bless you so abundantly. What we never see is those pastors who have millions and millions of dollars being the means of blessing their people. One of the great tragedies is when you see a pastor living in wealth and and just living in, in all of this luxury while their people are dying in poverty. It does the opposite of what this message is meant to do. What's the powerful part of verses 34 and 35? The powerful part is not that there's not a needy person. The powerful part is how that happened. And when we have a prosperity gospel that goes out and says, look, if you really had faith, you wouldn't have a need. That's not impacting the people as much as someone who says, if you have a need, come to me so that I can help you. That's the type of sign that this is meant to produce. That's the type of difference. And when we don't see that, it actually does the opposite of what we saw in verse 33. In verse 33, the message was going out powerfully. Why? Because of what the people were doing. Unfortunately, I've seen the other result of that. Uh, Many of you know I grew up in Brazil. And in Brazil, prosperity gospel is very prevalent. And what people would preach and all of this idea of of this is what you need to do. And I know of one individual, her son had just been uh, taken to prison uh, for some petty theft. And the pastor, and she came to the church and said, I need to do something for my son. And the pastor said, well, you need to give, it was like something like $2,000 for this woman who did not have that. If you give this money to the church, your son will be set free on Monday. And so she scrapped all of these things together, brought it to the church, gave it to the church. This pastor is living in luxury. And then on Monday, the son was condemned, I think, to like seven years. It was some large amount of time. And her words were, I will never step in a church again for the rest of my life. 
It's the exact opposite of what we saw here in verse 33. Instead of the body going and saying, you are in need, let us come around you. They took advantage of her and said, give us the little that you have. What is this describing in these verses? It's describing unity, love, selflessness. This is not normal. Who does this kind of thing? Those who have been redeemed by Christ. Those who have received the Spirit and therefore can be a sign because they are demonstrating their selfless unity. So here's the question for us. How are we doing as a church? We've looked at the example of the early church. Are we being an example like they were? Now, I want to be careful here, and I want to take this as a balanced approach because I think it would be very easy for us, having read this passage, to leave here feeling very guilty and thinking, oh, well, I haven't done this and I haven't done that. And and for me to then uh, hit on this hard and say, we need to do better and we need to do all of these things. And I don't want to do that. Because in many ways, and many of you can bear witness to this, our church has done these things. If I were to ask our church, raise your hand, if the church has come to you in a time of need and surrounded you and demonstrated the love of Christ, demonstrated their unity with you in your time of need, I think many hands, probably all of the hands of our members would be up. Just recently, I got a text from someone in our church saying, I want to thank you so much for the way the church helped me with this financial need assuming that I knew about it. And I had no clue about that it had happened because other people had seen the need and taken care of it without me knowing at all. And so to understand, there is much of this, I think, is happening very well. At the same time, we also want to look at this passage and evaluate for ourselves, where can we go next? How would Christ have us become more like the body of Christ? How would we demonstrate better the sign of the Spirit among us? So let me ask you this. Are we seeking to share our personal blessings in order to bless others in the body of Christ? If God has given us something, are we taking that and saying, God, how would you have me use this to bless others? Lord, you gave me this. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. I don't count it as my possession. How would you have me use this for others? One of the fantastic ways that this can happen that is an area we need to grow in is hospitality. Having people over to our house. But one of the problems that we don't do that is the whole Facebook syndrome, the element of, wait, unless my house looks perfect, unless people can come over and think that the way that my pictures demonstrate my life online is actually how I live every day, I, I can't have them over. And so we don't. And we don't bless them in that way. We don't sit around the kitchen table and say, how can I pray for you? How can I bless you in this moment? We need to actually say, wait, if I have these possessions, how do I help others with them? Uh, One of the books that I thought have found very helpful is this one. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. 
and does a fantastic job just describing what hospitality is meant to look like within the believers and not only just hospitality towards other believers, but hospitality towards others. She does a wonderful job of even going against the things of like, oh, well, your house has to be perfect before you have someone over. Instead, she's like, nope, I've got dirty laundry on the kitchen table and people come over and I'm like, yep, this is what we're doing right now, but why don't we talk and go through life together? Um, there's eight of these copies in the back. You can take one. You just have to actually guarantee that you're going to read it. And what I mean by that is it doesn't go on your shelf that I will read someday. It means it's the next book that you're going to read. So if this is, can make it onto your list of the next book that you will read after you finish whatever you're reading now, or if you're not reading something, you can take this, but just guarantee to me that you'll actually read it. I'm not going to take lists. I'm not going to take names. I'm not going to ask you, but just please, if you're going to take one, actually read it. We have people in our church who have done this element of hospitality. When Hannah and I bought our house, we bought a foreclosure that needed a lot of work and that was what we could afford. And yet we didn't want to pay a mortgage and also our rent at the same time. And so what happened? Ben and Kristen Hibbard said, move in with us. Live in our home so that you can work on your home. Let us, the things that we have are not our own. They're things that God has given us. Live here. While we were doing that, Ben, who is actually licensed contractor, did all those things, said, hey, how about I work at your house for free so that this can go faster? I don't know if it was because he wanted me out of his house, um, but he would every day get up instead of making money for himself, came over and blessed my family by doing it and bought most of the materials to do it too examples that we're seeing of this type of community that does not hold back but shares the blessings with other are we powerfully supporting the proclamation of christ by showing the world our love for each other when the world looks at our church is the only thing that makes sense that christ has transformed us when they look at our church does our church aid in the witness of christ or detract from it. Because we're talking about books today, we've already handed this one out before, but this is a great book that talks about that. There's other copies there, same rules apply. Compelling community. A community that demonstrates the community that lives together the way that Christ has called us to live. That is a community that people will look at and say, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you have all different political views, different economic backgrounds, different social backgrounds. It doesn't make sense that you can be a united community unless the good news wasn't too good to be true, unless the good news was actually completely true. Are we willing to give or sell everything or anything in order to help others within the body in need? Are there things that we would say, God... I'm willing to give this, but I'm not willing to give that. God, you can ask me for a lot, but that, that one's actually mine. Now, please understand, in this passage, not everyone in Acts sold everything that they had at once, and then all of them only had a pile of money at the feet of the disciples, and that was it. No, it was as they were led. It was always voluntary, not coerced. And not everyone sold everything, because throughout Acts, we're still going to have people meeting in each other's homes. So obviously, someone still owned a home. But when there was a need, and someone said, wait a second, I think I could fill that need. I think I could be an answer to that person's prayer. They were willing 
to do it. See, the common denominator in all of these is an others-focused life. This is what, John, what Jesus said in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's the problem? We are not capable of loving each other like this. See, when I, I look at this passage, there's a couple of you that I'm, I'm like, oh man, I could love them like that. I, if that, this person was in need, I would be willing to sell what I have for that. But I think all of us can say there are other people, even within our body, that'd be like, I don't know. That would be harder for me to give up stuff for. It would be harder for me to sacrifice for them. And what that is demonstrating is the fallenness of my own heart that there is a lack of love within me. This has been a problem since the beginning of human history. Since the very beginning, did Adam love his wife sacrificially? No, he threw her under the bus. Cain and Abel, were they selfless or selfish? There is a lack of love that has been a problem since the beginning. And our problem of why we are not living this out is because there are people in this body that we are not loving the way Christ loved them. And so the only solution then is to look to Jesus. The only means for us to actually live the way that we are meant to live is if we are turning to Christ. Christ is the only one who lived this way. He selflessly shared. Look at the life that he had on his life. He shared his time. He shared his body. He shared everything that he had for the sake of others selflessly. He showed powerfully that God was the source of all grace. And where he, whereas he did not sell, per se, anything, he gave up everything. He left heaven, he put on humanity, not just for a time, but for the rest of eternity, and then he gave his life for the sake of those in need. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If Christ is the only one who has ever demonstrated the kind of love we are meant to demonstrate, then Christ is the only solution for us. And this begins with our salvation. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot live this type of life. It, look at what it says in verse 32. How does the passage begin? And the full number, looking at verse 32, the full number of those who had what? Those who believed. Those who had been saved. Those who had been given a new heart. They were now part of this new body. 
If you are not first saved by Christ, then you cannot follow the example of Christ. The internal sign of the Spirit is limited to those who have first been saved in Christ. But once we are saved, once we have a new heart, is this just a guaranteed action? Are we going to love everyone within the body the way we are meant to love them as long as we're saved? No. We're going to struggle with this. It's still going to be hard, which is why we need to be continually sanctified. In verse 33, we need to continually have grace poured out on us. We need to continually be growing in our love of others. But as we are saved, as we are sanctified, there will be times where we just need to choose to submit. One of the problems that we see here the, the reason we don't live as the, the church the way we should is because we lack love for our brothers and sisters. The further problem from that is that we don't understand what love is and we think that love is just an emotion. I will show love to the people who I feel love towards. I will show love to the ones I desire to love. I will show love to the ones who deserve love. But again, we go back to Christ. Did Christ show love to the church because it deserved his love? No. See, love is a choice and an action. And there will be times when there will be people in our church that we do not feel love towards. We do not want to demonstrate love towards them, but we will need to choose to love them. We will need to choose to selflessly share what God has given us. We will need to choose to powerfully show the transformation that God has done in our lives. We will need to choose to generously sell and give away our possessions in order to bless them, even though we don't want to. In Mark 12, 30 through 31, Jesus gives us the summary of all the laws, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second, the second great command is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, do we love everyone else within the body because they're easy to love? No. We love everyone else in the, in the body because we love God and he has told us to love them. Do you think the world looks at the gospel and thinks it's too good to be true? And do you think that maybe the reason they wonder if it's too good to be true because they look at the body of Christ and say, I see no evidence of the transformation they're claiming. That's on us. Can Christ still powerfully save them? Absolutely. Can Christ still use our failures in order to accomplish his mission? Yes, and he will. His mission will be accomplished. And yet what we are called to do is to powerfully demonstrate the sign that what God said is true. When we go and witness to others, when we bear witness to what Christ has done, the resurrection of Christ, when people peek around behind us and say, let me look at your church. Let me see if what you're saying actually bears, has evidence in the life of your church. What are they going to see? Are we 
selflessly sharing what we have? Are we powerfully showing what God has done? Are we generously selling what we have when we see someone in need? We have been tasked with not just good news, we've been given the greatest news. We are to be witnesses of Christ. The news is so good, it might sound too good to be true, and people will want to, be, want to look for signs. May we be part of the sign that the Spirit truly dwells within us. The Spirit's sign among us is selfless unity between us.